Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End, with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 5 of Inside the West End. Follow us on Twitter at Inside West End, or if you'd like to contact us, then email InsideTheWestEnd at gmail.com. Coming up, we speak to producer, director, and founder of the Union Theatre, Sasha Regan. The Union Theatre is one of the most unique theatres you're ever likely to visit. Uh, And we wanted to hear from the woman who set it up single-handedly at the age of 23. So we headed down to the venue itself in Southwark near London Bridge. And here's the chat we had. This is Sasha Regan and you're listening to Inside the West End. Sasha Regan. Welcome to Inside the West End. Hello. So we're here at the Union Theatre. Uh, for those who haven't been to the Union Theatre before, um, how would you describe this setting that we're in? It's a very unique space that we're in. There's no theatre like this in the world, I wouldn't imagine. It's a theatre set underneath a railway arch in uh, Southwark. And so it's bare brick. It's a bit damp. It's a bit musty. Uh, it's definitely got a recognisable smell. And the theatre is full uh, from the moment you walk in uh, until you leave, of pieces of props and costumes and set that have probably appeared on stage at one point uh, and have gradually, in a really organic way, been collated over the last 20 years because I'm not very good at tidying up, basically. <laughs> so it has a very uh, non-generic uh, feeling to it, which is what people like. And it feels, uh, when people come here for the first time, that they've discovered a really cool little place and they generally want to come back someone popped in yesterday to Americans and every sub, every summer uh, they come over for their annual vacation and they always come and, and see a show here because they love the experience. It feels very British. It feels very quirky, very eccentric. I can't imagine that this would exist in the States. You can see why that appeal would, would be in a very positive way. But then friends have just that I've toured with, Joe Houston and Will Walton, have just set one up in Manchester called the Hope Mill Theatre found a converted old warehouse and they're doing exactly the same thing so it's nice and there's actually one in New York from an actor that worked here years and years ago and his wife I think she worked for somewhere like Macy's or something got, went over to work there and he set up the secret theatre I think it's called in New York based on this one is it right this used to be an old printer's? A print warehouse in that no a paper warehouse, paper warehouse yeah. so the first time I came in here it was like about a foot uh, deep in water and sludge and rat traps it was hideous but these huge rolls that were you know the span of your arms wide of uh, bread bin liners or uh, cellophane I've still got a sellotape roll in the drawer over there that's uh, the size of a bike wheel mm. that's been here for 20 years and you give it to people and they think it's like a comedy tape but um, so we had to clear all that, that out when we first came here and I think it's been loads of other things in the past I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a fish warehouse supplying Borough Market because you've still got the um, wooden struts 
on the walls at regular intervals in the theatre. So what if we go right back, not just the early days of the Union, but the early days of Sasha Regan? I was at the Young Vic Youth Theatre and I did all my grades in ballet, tap and modern. That's what I thought I was going to do. That's what I wanted to do. And then I realised as you get older, you're not as good as you think you are. I moved gradually into acting. And then uh, failed my A-levels. Didn't do too well in my GCSEs. And had that talking to that you get from your parents with... Um, we can do. What made you interested in ballet in the first place? Was my mum was a ballet teacher, okay. uh, self-employed, and my dad was self-employed as well. He ran, um, he had a, a really sweet jewelry shop in Blackheath Village for like 20 years. I think it was more than that, 25 years. So I have come from families of everyone worked for themselves. Yeah, and so creative. I just did it. Yeah, so a mix of the two. We were always taken to London, always taken to the theatre, you know, really lovely gallery visits and walks. And he just, only from South London, from out in a working class sort of area, but my dad had a love of London. My mum was quite a confident woman. She went to live in New York at 17, got on a boat and went and lived and worked in New York as a nanny for a few years when she was young, which actually at that time was quite an independent thing. And then she met my dad on a train, and that was it. She had the bridesmaids material and everything. Matt yeah. fell in love straight away, and then they were together for years and years and years. So, so you started off ballet performing. What's your very, very earliest memory of performing? I do remember being a fairy, and it was in Crayford Town Hall, and you all got changed in the kitchens, <laughs> and then all the fairies were on, you know, the old school benches, the wooden school yeah, benches, yeah. and all the fairies were on those in a long line, stood there with your white sheet. I think it changed when I was at school. We had a really good drama teacher called Miss Darby. She was the first teacher that said, well done, you're good at that. And that's where it all starts, isn't it? And working as a director, as a producer nowadays, is there anything that you can recognise in the teenage version of yourself which kind of led you to that side of the, the industry? When I went to university, part of the course in the third year was to do directing. I wasn't supposed to find out, but my head of year told me at the end that I'd come top in the directing. And I hadn't come top in anything else. It's exactly that. As soon as someone gives you the thumbs up, you think, oh, I didn't know that I was good at that. And then when I left, I, I wanted to uh, get an agent and be an actor. It's really tough to do straight acting. It's almost impossible who didn't go to drama school. And then I met a couple of other girls at an audition. We decided to stage a production. So we hired out the bird's nest in Deptford above a pub and put on a production there for one week um, and sold out. Enjoyed that process of being in control slightly. And then I was doing telesales for a long time. Mm. Being in one of those really mundane jobs is actually a really good incentive to get off your ass and do something because you're just so bored. I think yeah. it's that thing also. That they never speak about that at drama school. Um, they never talk to you about, realistically at the start, that you're unlikely to work solidly. But you went straight into creating your own work, creating something for yourself. It feels like it was quite early, because I was about 23 when I started this, when I got the lease and everything. But that long two years when you've graduated (laughs) and you're not getting auditions and Mm. you're not doing what you want. It's no different now, though. The producing work that I get is what I create. No one really comes along and waves a magic wand Mm. if you want to direct there's very few people that go straight in. And if, you're, if you haven't been to Oxford and Cambridge and, and have a massive amount of contacts, it's not easy for someone to become a director. So when you um, took over the union, 
Uh, how, how long was that period of time between having the idea, coming and seeing the premises, and then your actual first opening night? It was, it was about a year from beginning to end. I looked at a lot of premises, and this one, Network Rail, said, oh, you won't like that one. But when I walked in, I knew that it was right. I knew that the layout worked perfectly. I found some drawings. I found my first ever business plan the other day, and I'd actually... I did a drawing of the Thames and coloured it in in colour pencils and it says this is the River Thames and this is Southwark and this will be a great place to be. I mean, it's so juvenile when I look at it now. And my whole of my cash flow forecast is done in pencil with lines going down. Didn't have a computer that worked yeah. like they do now. And we finally got the keys. I think I got the keys in October and we opened in December. There was no electrics, no water, no doorways, toilets. We were still screwing seats together as the audience were, you know, coming that evening, putting it all together. And I've got photographs of the first night, and it was my mum behind the bar, no artwork, no drinks, no glasses, with a kettle and some mugs, just telling everyone how cold it was behind the bar. Mum, it's going cold. Don't tell everyone. She's got a scarf, gloves, hat. What was the first show? Uh, Abigail's Party. And it got really good review in Time Out and sold out. Did really well for the company. A lot of people want and dream and regularly talk of and I'd love to run my own theatre to do, create small work create, uh, and you've done it what propelled you to follow that through because uh, even... naivety I think and literally it's as simple as being that young and your dad saying you need to sort your life out what are you doing you can't stay at home without a job and just having to do something and and being so naive that you just think yeah I could do that that'd be really nice have my own theatre and then starting and then realising how exhausting it is at the beginning. That's why making the move over there is giving me sleepless nights, because I know now what it entailed. You mentioned moving over there. We should point out by that you mean the Union Theatre is moving across the road to a yes. new venue, under, still under the railway arches, but just literally across the road. Yeah. What's brought that about? We had a massive fight in 2013. Horrific year it was. Uh, network Rail, I was taking my kids swimming, I came out, there was an email, uh, here's your six-month eviction notice after being here for 18 years, and I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach, immediately started crying, and emailed Network Rail back, yeah, we do have that in your tenancy agreement, we can give you notice at any point with six months notice. The idea behind that is that if they need to get access for maintenance of the railway lines, um, they can always do that but they'd chosen to evict, they wanted to evict me and about seven businesses over there. So we started a massive campaign and that year was taken up with uh, fighting to stay. The other businesses, they haven't been able to stay, but I think they kept me, they probably kept me because I was a theatre and actually the noise that we made, this small, dusty little theatre, they didn't realise how, and I think we had 20,000 signatures within 10 days and we had... London Tonight and Evening Standard and so very quickly they, they started to listen. So they still wanted me to move but they've made it a lot easier in that they've found me a space opposite so I get two arches to move into with a restaurant, with a warehouse of space, um, the rent's quadrupled. If you don't face those hurdles and face your fears. It's that Richard Branson thing of screw it, let's do it. Yeah and what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. That's what I always think. The new venue is slightly different than this one. What's new? It's going to be double the size, fully glazed at the front, so it'll be natural light coming in the house of space and in the restaurant by folding doors, which is what <laughs> everyone wants these days. And uh, a restaurant, 
and then in the theatre side there'll be more seats just nicer facilities that will be you know however quirky this is it's pretty damp and rotten at the moment because it's I've known that I was going to be moving it'll be a more pleasurable experience but my regulars are really keen that we keep the atmosphere and part of that atmosphere as we're talking now you can hear a train yeah. going, going by I think that's one of the brilliant things about the shows at, at, at the Union quite often they happen in, in the in the absolute right moments you <laughs> know very here. very atmospheric moments and could you tell us in simple terms, what a producer is. I think I make things happen. I've, I've got a business partner for all of the touring work that I do with the, all my own productions. So we have slotted into a really nice relationship where I find the right people for the project. I think I'm quite good at selling what I have so I can help attract venues, the right people for the company. And Ben's really fantastic with... Um, all the management at the theatre and the contracting and the deals and all those sort of things I find really embarrassing and I find really hard to deal with. A producer should make everyone in the company feel safe and create something from beginning to end. Another one of your roles here is essentially as artistic director. You get to pick what shows you're going to do. Uh, What influences that decision? I think it's about people (laughs) for me. Yeah. Someone could be in a show at the moment and say, I've always wanted to do this. And if I click with them, I think I've learned to trust my instincts quite a lot over the years. There's a lot of people that you just think, no, you would be too much hassle (laughs) to have in the venue. And then it's just not worth it. So I think good people, it starts at the top. You have a good director who's calm, uh, creative. People want to please. They keep everyone happy. There's a lot to be said for that in a small environment. Or in a big environment, isn't it? And I like putting on stuff here that people probably didn't think should belong in a small space. If someone says you can't do that, they're reimagined and often work better than on a big stage. Mm. You can't do a mini version of a a West End show here. You can do a completely new version of a West End musical here and then then that's when it works. Your all-male Gilbert Sullivan operators they've been a huge success here they've toured all over the world um they toured one is about to start touring uk hms pinafore about to go on a uk tour when did that idea come about i've myself as an actor have worked in gilbert gilbert sullivan production for opera companies and the thing that struck me with gilbert sullivan is people have really particular ideas about how it should be done which i actually slightly disagreed with and then I read you were doing an all-male Gilbert Sullivan, and my reaction was, that's absolutely genius. That is su- it's such a clever idea, because it's um, a style of performance which needs to be introduced to a younger audience, yeah. and that is a way of doing it. Is that how the idea came about? I think it's because of the young male voice. There's nothing purer. And the thought of setting these Gilbert and Sullivans in a school, essentially, having done single-sex versions when I was at school, um, and trying to drag it away from exactly what you said. No, this is how you deliver. They know exactly how to deliver certain lines, don't they, in yeah. productions. Well, I, d- I don't want to do it that way. Going to GNS productions, I'm literally falling asleep. Yeah. <laughs> you do, don't you? Yeah. That's so, so stayed. As long as it's not played in drag, there's a really beautiful innocence to having an all-male cast. It must cause casting nightmares, not just for finding boys who can sing these stunning um, women's songs, but also finding the leading men 
who's standing next to a man playing a woman at the right height, the right look. It's been a nightmare. I have um, leading boys that with the beautiful tenor, high tenor voices, but they're all quite small. So I've (laughs) literally been putting breakdowns out saying I want a high tenor who's over six foot. (laughs) It's just been impossible. Because everyone lies and they come in. And I'm like, you know, you're definitely not six foot because I'm 5'7 and you're about the same height as me. Did you not think at any point we wouldn't clock that? Yeah. So, I mean, physically, you that makes it quite difficult to have a leading lady of six foot one. You mentioned auditions there. If you could just give a message to the actors of the world now about auditions, what would your advice be? Musical theatre? Uh, well, or regardless. Actors. No, no, actually both would be great. Make a choice. It can be really bland doing auditions one auditioning every five minutes from 10 till 6 I'm not saying I want you to lay on the floor or do a dance routine but they'll come in and they'll deliver their song they'll execute it it's perfectly fine but it doesn't wake you up and then one lad will just come in he's got a bit of a personality or uh, is a little bit cheeky sings his song makes a really there's some really terrible song choices out there and you think no you are a professional singing you should know what suits your voice Mm. if you are a six foot lad with a big beard and muscles your voice and your song need to fit what you look like it's as simple as that Uh, and just be a bit brave when you come in and audition because you've got nothing to lose if you play it safe you at the end of the day when we're going over that's where you fall through the net Mm. everyone that comes in through the door i do want to be the, the person that I can cast and sometimes the lad walks through looks absolutely perfect and we like touch each other's knee under the table here we go it's him it's him it's him looks really fantastic and then they'll come in and <laughs> as soon as they open their mouth they've got terrible lisp or... sing old man <laughs> yeah so it's um, know your casting and then deliver that with the right song or the right audition speech yeah. get someone from the outside to go to me you look like this is who I think you're going to tell him there, there. Tell him about it. <laughs> <laughs> who does he look Tyrone from Coronation yeah. <laughs> hope you're enjoying the conversation stay with us and we'll be back to the chat in a moment please make sure you subscribe to our podcast we release a new episode every Sunday and if you're subscribed it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to whether you're using an iPhone or an Android or a laptop of some kind, it's easy to subscribe. Yeah, all you need to do is go to your normal podcast app. If it's an iPhone, then next to the logo of our show, you'll see a little settings wheel that looks like a cog. Click on that, a few options down, it says subscribe. Or if you're using an Android phone, then on the Double Pod app, next to the logo of our show, is the subscribe button. Easy as that, and the best part is, it's totally free. Make sure you stay tuned right to the end of this episode, and you'll hear a clip revealing who's on next week's show. Now back to the chat with Sasha. In your time, you've sat through hundreds of editions. Is there a car crash which sticks in your head when you go on? I had someone really question me once. He did have a job. By the time he left the room, he talked himself out of it. He disagreed with what you wanted him to bring to the, the, the piece he was delivering. Yeah, he was like, well, I've seen a DVD of your work before. It was, it's all right. <laughs> oh, come uh, on. <laughs> it was stuff like that. And as he was sat there, I thought, whether it's your nerves or not, even if you don't like what I'm doing, just lie. <laughs> if you want, otherwise, why would you be here? Yeah, your job is to make the people want to work with you. Yeah, it's not like, it's not difficult, is it, no. to grasp that? One of the things uh, that we want to ask you about is uh, 
the realm of profit share. What is your view of it? Um, there recently was a cause, uh, someone from the King's Head writing about there should be minimum wage. We just wanted to hear your thoughts, how you feel about that. I think when I thought that I was going to be evicted, you have like a flashback to all the years that you have been working here. And then you see all the projects that have started here, all the friendships that you've got from being here. And it is a really special place when you have a genuine, small uh, studio where people create things. And they are always done on a shoestring. Um, like most of the things here or on set are either from my house or end up in my house. And it's, um, it's about creating something. And I think most people that do a profit share here might only do one. And it might be, in, I mean, if you look in town, most people have got a union theatre credit on their CV. And most of them are graduates that are just starting out or they have had a break or struggling and they just need to remind people that they are here and then their careers can do really well afterwards. I think it's people's choice to do it. I think the amount of seats that you have, if you do the basics maths, it is impossible to guarantee that you could pay everyone a certain amount of money. And a lot of them make a loss with 50 seats and 10% to the agents and set and comps, because we give industry comps to everyone that comes in. It, it does make it impossible, but I think it's people's choice. And I think if you took away Fringe Theatre, you took away Edinburgh, you took away people's choice, it would be a really sad place. What you're faced with, if we had to pay everyone in a 50-seater the minimum wage, then what I would probably have to do would be to get a name or maybe a cast of four. And then they would have to have probably a CV or an amount of Twitter followers that you would get in town. I can do that, I could do that, but that's not really what I want to do. It's like when I started acting, I couldn't get an audition for a fringe job. If I do that and choose to go down that route, then all the people that get an audition here at the moment or play here, they won't be the people being auditioned anymore, will they? So then it's just a mini version of town with quite safe choices. My reading of um, the argument about the minimum wage thing, the thing that struck me the most when I read it was... All these different venues are in such different locations in London that the rent must be totally different and not in no way comparable. I, d- I don't understand how you could make a rule like that for these venues because they're so varied. They are varied and they vary in size as well. If you're looking at, is it the same? If I go to somewhere else, if I go to Wilton's, uh, where we produce stuff, then your wage reflects having 200 seats compared to 50 seats. When I go on tour, my wages reflect when I'm playing into somewhere that's an 80-seater. And I love that. I love the fact that small work starts here. And out of that company I've just cast of 16, uh, there's a lot of them that started here. I love that it's generated work and we're not touring with stars. Even when we move out of here, we are touring with a company of actors that I want to work with and we don't have to put names into it. Um, I think I've digressed a little bit there. Not at all. But yeah, you can't put, you know, I, if I'm not in a pub with where maybe the room is at a moderate rate, I'm here with my Southwark in SE1 now, the rates are £950 a month, your electricity is £800 a month, so it very, very, very quickly becomes a huge amount of money. Not enough at the moment that we can't stay here. I think um, the people that work here generally are really happy to be here. Yeah. I want to come back, and often they may have come out of a huge job in town, 
and they just want to do something creative. They don't want to be told where, what number to stand on, and they want to use their brains. Um, so I think, I mean, it's a great thing that people can experience that, and actually it works in my favour if you've got a really experienced actor that chooses to do a project here that they're really wanting to do for a long time, because they'll bring that expert, expertise of having worked in the industry for a long time. And then they'll come in and they're almost mentoring these grads that just come out in June. So that mixture of old and new is a really nice thing. Mm. That's when it works really well. Or you might get an actor that's worked all his, his or her life and then they want to direct. They'll come and direct something. So it's just such a lovely melting pot. It would be really sad if it just... I would rather not have the union than go to a place where I have do have a really safe option. And of course, you nearly didn't have the union anymore, and that was that probably yeah, would I be right in thinking that was would that have been the most difficult part of your career? Yeah, that year was absolutely horrific. I remember when, yeah, a lot of tears, lost about a stone in weight. It was absolutely horrific. Did you ever consider leaving the industry? Did you ever consider? Yeah, I reckon if I didn't have kids, that year was a really tough year for me, um, emotion, uh, per, in a personal way as well. Uh, because I went through a divorce as well. That year, if I hadn't got kids, I would have packed my, if I could have packed a suitcase and gone, I probably would, but something keeps you. Did having children affect your view on the industry, the instability of it all, the uncertainty of company? It's funny now, because I've got a 13-year-old who's suddenly aware of what an iPhone 5 is compared to an iPhone 6. Mm. She's got a lot of friends at school that live in quite nice houses. She goes to the local comp. If you've got an island in your kitchen... She thinks you've made it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and they've got like glitter in their island as well. I'm like, wow, there you go. Uh, you've got glitter in your blood, darling. <laughs> doesn't care. Why is the whole thing mortifying? Tell your drama teacher I've got a tour going out. Obviously, you're thinking you could sell a few tickets at school. Uh, or, no, she's just really embarrassed though, of what I do in that really lovely teenage way. And we'll be driving along and she'll say, can't we move there, mum? And it'll be, you know, quite a nice house. No, we can't be. We have to stay where we are. But why? You work really hard. Yeah, but it doesn't, that doesn't equate if you choose to work in theatre. But I, I suppose you just hope at some point they get that you get so much more from working in something that you enjoy. I've got a photograph of her in Sydney Theatre when we went there asleep in the wings when she was a little girl backstage everywhere and it's just so normal to them now that mm. they get excited whereas I'm, I've worked so hard to get backstage at Theatre or Bath or any of these venues that I am beside myself yeah. with excitement You talk about Sydney very briefly Could you tell us about the, the um, Hail Poetry moment in, in Kate Blanchett's house I've seen, were you there when that happened? Yeah I was there but we, we were under strict instruction when you go to Sydney Theatre I mean to start with that whole process was an email saying, do you fancy coming to Australia with your production? And Ben and I would be sitting in the bar getting these emails through from Australia and we completely blagged it. We would be here going, what do you, what do you, I mean, how, what size truck do we need? We don't know what size truck we need. We've only done it in here and then at Wilton's. So yes, I can safely say we blagged most of that producing, taking 25 of us we took over to Australia so then when you get to Sydney we were there for three weeks any international company they get taken they're invited to Kate Blanchett's house for a barbecue because she's the artistic director she was the artistic director with Andrew Upton no photographs no one's allowed photographs and uh, I booked the minibus 
that was taking us there for a certain time because I thought if these boys get drunk because they, they were loving being in Australia literally like that we need to get out before people start misbehaving and nicking the BAFTAs and the Oscars from the bathroom <laughs> so I was being quite well behaved but actually within minutes as you walk through she's in her tracksuit bottoms and uh, three kids dog kitten husband's on the barbie I thought it was going to be you know staff there and such a fantastic house, so welcoming. We were all in the pool with her. People that hadn't been in the sea in Australia because didn't like going to the beach were suddenly doing backstroke past Cape Blanchett. And uh, her favourite moment of the show was Hell Poetry. And the boys went into Hell Poetry in the garden with her in the middle, most of them holding a bottle of beer at the same time. It was, an, it was really surreal when you think about it because my children were there in the pool with her kids and her, and we were just chatting like two women that work and have children. Did she have an island with glitter on? No. Oh, she did have an island. Yeah. She had a really cool <laughs> polished concrete by folding doors, you know, down onto the pool. And She's very got stylish house. Oscars on it instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, very cool house. Bit of a change of direction now. Do you think that show business is a game that you need to learn how to play? No, I don't think it's a game. I think you, if you work hard, you stay decent. This is for any area of it, actually. Yeah. You have to be able to behave well, just like in any job. Have your manners, behave well, do your job well, be re-employable, then you can stay in the industry. Whether you're the stage manager, the actor, or uh, the producer, if you have a mutual respect of people in the room and you work hard at what you do, I think you can succeed. Do you dream of, do you ever have a view to um, produce something on a big scale? I do want to continue to do the work that I'm proud of. Like when The last time we did Pinafore, I think the last night was in Winchester, and I stood in the wings and watched it, and I was really proud of the company. It was really beautiful. And I think they all left, they all got changed, they went to the pub, and I think I cried for about an hour. If you can create something you're happy to put your name to... Actually, that's all right. With my two kids, I and mean, I've spent my life going, you don't marry it, you earn it, girls. Now I'm 43, I'm a little bit more like, honey, maybe they should just go and marry it because it would be much easier than working. But then you still need to look at yourself in the mirror, don't you? Mm. Who are your theatre guys? Who are the producers, uh, directors, actors who you hear what they're doing and you, you get excited about going to see their work? I actually find going to see... Uh, dance pieces, say if you go and see Matthew Bourne or something, I find that inspires what I do for the all-male, because you need to be completely visual with what you do, because half the time people can't understand what's going on in the old scripts so if I want my seven-year-old kid to, and a young audience to get Gilbert Sullivan, they need to be able to see it and hear it, and if you need to be able to tell the story through dance it'll be a dance piece generally there's a new show out called Cole I want to go and see love going to Edinburgh and seeing things that no one's told you about what was the last piece of theatre that you actively bought a ticket for that you wanted to see it was actually in Edinburgh that was completely off the wall that blew my mind was going to see a piece of ice skating in Edinburgh and you had to go out of Edinburgh to this huge hockey ice rink and it was a Parisian company and I can't even find them now on on the internet I think they're quite small and you sat on the side of the of the ice on these cushions so that when 
these guys in jeans and t-shirts. You know, there wasn't a tan tie in sight. And you didn't quite know what was going on to start with, but it was done with such passion and the music and the score and just this, these floodlights hitting them. That, that took my breath away. To be really honest with you, I love going to see comedians or things aren't to do with theatre a lot yeah. or film because otherwise it's a bit of a, it can be a busman's holiday. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like if you work a lot and you think about work when you're in bed at night and in the middle of the night, if you can go and see a really good comedian or a piece of film or go to a gallery, then it doesn't link anywhere in your brain to yeah. what you've got to do on your to-do list the next day. We've tried to do that this year, haven't we? To, yeah. to see both oh, yeah. more theatre, but also to go to more sports events and yeah. go to more comedy and just... Otherwise we'd be pretty dull yeah. as well. But it all inspires. It all inspires yeah. uh, your creativity. Yeah. The, the more you can take your way, yourself away from the theatre and be interested in the world. You have been at the forefront of the fringe theatre movement in London for a long period of time. You've given a lot of people opportunities. What is your bit of advice that you would give to anyone who wanted to work inside the West End. It doesn't matter what background you've got, you've come from. I think more people from working class backgrounds need to say, I've got something to offer. A little bit of arrogance where you think, well, they've told me I can't do that, so I'm going to do that. And if you just have, have some determination and create your own work, there's nothing better actually than doing that. If you can't get in one way, think about accessing your work from, like you guys are doing with your podcasts, do something that stimulates you and find like-minded people, actually a good business partner or someone to make you braver. And a partner does make you braver, doesn't it? Yeah. I think I know, I'm, I'm confident when I'm talking about something that I know and when I don't know what I'm talking about, pretend that you do. Why did you look or at me when you said that? Seek advice from someone that knows. <laughs> Sasha Regan, thank you so much for taking the, the time you. to speak to us. Uh, what a fantastic and inspiring conversation. Thank you. A big thank you to Sasha Regan for taking the time to speak to us. If you've never been to the Union Theatre, we highly recommend it. Everything I've ever seen there has been very memorable. Uh, Reducing a big production to a small studio space, it's a real skill, and they've absolutely honed it there. So I I highly recommend that you check out what's coming up uh, and go and see something. And a massive big thank you to you, our listeners. Um, We started this podcast way over a year ago. We launched it a couple of weeks ago. And since then, we've had thousands, literally thousands of people listening to us all around the world. Of course, in countries like the UK and the United States and Ireland. Hello to all of you. But also in countries like Zimbabwe and Pakistan and Iraq and New Zealand and Brazil. The list goes on. It's crazy. So hello to all of you. We hope you're enjoying it. We're certainly enjoying speaking to you. So wherever you're listening in the world, we would absolutely love to hear from you. So tweet us at Inside West End. Send us photos, messages. Uh, we want to hear from you. The more obscure a place you listen, the better. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're that person listening in Q8, drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> um, the other thing that's blown our mind is how we've kind of rocketed up the iTunes charts. We've spent most of the last few weeks in the top 10 um, in the arts category on iTunes. It, it's crazy. Uh, we couldn't imagine that. We make this in, in our flats. Like, it's, it's 
beautiful. So the way you can keep that going, and we'd love you to, would be to leave us a review on iTunes. Only takes a second. Give us five stars, if you think. And uh, a few lines about what we're doing. We'd love that. And of course, the word of mouth, please keep that going. It goes a really, really long way with podcasts. Uh, If you know people who like theatre or just like listening to podcasts generally, tell them about what we're doing. Uh, We try and make these interviews so that they'd be interesting to anyone, not just theatre fans. So spread the word. Talking of word of mouth, uh, we want to tell you about a podcast that Ben and I have been listening to, uh, really enjoy. It's called Theatre People, hosted by a guy called Patrick in New York. It's him talking to all the big Broadway stars. It's a great counterpart to what we're doing over here in London. Patrick has been really great, giving us great support from over in New York, messaging us, really sweet of him. So thank you, Patrick. Check out his podcast, Theatre with an E-R on the end. Download it now. Remember to stay tuned to the very end for a clip of the next episode. But before that, we make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit InsideTheWestEnd.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on InsideTheWestEnd.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. Now, as promised, we have a clip of the next episode, and this is not one to be missed. So, hold on to your top C's and crack open a bottle of Dom, dear. It's the naughtiest man in showbiz and Twitter sensation, West End producer. Oh, we've got someone coming in. Oh, look. Oh, look at this. We've been saving this. Oh, my. <laughs> One day. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm honoured. Can I just pour this? Absolutely. Yes. Would you like me to do that for you? Yes, thank I you was so literally much. just about to start the intro to our conversation with West End producer when the door of the office that we're in at the stage newspaper burst open and a lady came in bearing a tray with a, sh- a flute and a bottle of baby sham. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get more glamorous than this, no, does it, West End no, producer? This is respect, my dear. This is fame. And I must add that uh, it has been presented to me in the most camp, jazz-hand-friendly pink flute you've ever seen. And I feel so at home, my dear. (laughs) 